Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? You tried. How do the dead come back, Mother? What's the secret? The Last Night Mr. Utterson was sitting by his fireside one evening after dinner when he was surprised to receive a visit from Poole. "'Bless me, Poole, what brings you here?' he cried. And then, taking a second look at him, "'What ails you?' he added. "'Is the doctor ill?' "'Mr. Utterson,' said the man, "'there is something wrong. "'Take a seat, and here's a glass of wine for you,' said the lawyer. "'Now, take your time and tell me plainly what you want.' "'You know the doctor's ways, sir,' replied Poole, "'and how he shuts himself up. Well, he's shut up again in the cabinet, and I don't like it, sir. I wish I may die if I like it. Mr. Utterson, sir, I'm afraid. Now, my good man, said the lawyer, be, be explicit. What are you afraid of? I've been afraid for about a week, returned Poole, doggedly disregarding the question, and I can bear it no more. The man's appearance amply bore out his words. His manner was altered for the worse, and except for the moment when he had first announced his terror, he had not once looked the lawyer in the face. Even now he sat with a glass of wine untasted on his knee, and his eyes directed to a corner of the floor. I can bear it no more, he repeated. Come, said the lawyer. I see you have some good reason, Poole. I see there is something seriously amiss. Try to tell me what it is. I think there's been foul play, said Poole hoarsely. Foul play, cried the lawyer, a good deal frightened and rather inclined to be irritated in consequence. What foul play? What does the man mean? I don't say, sir, was the answer, but will you come along with me and see for yourself? Mr. Utterson's only answer was to rise and get his hat and greatcoat, but he observed with wonder the greatness of the relief that appeared on the butler's face, and perhaps with no less, the wine was still untasted when he set it down to follow. It was a wild, cold, seasonable night of March, with a pale moon lying on her back as though the this wind is the classic her, ghost stories podcast the most diaphanous second and, and final part texture. of the strange the case of talking difficult of the strange the case of dr jekyll and it mr it seemed Hyde. to have swept the streets unusually bare of passengers besides for mr utterson thought he had never seen that part of london so deserted he could have wished it otherwise never in his life had he been conscious of so sharp a wish to see and touch his fellow creatures for struggle as he might there was borne in upon his mind a crushing anticipation of calamity. The square when they got there was full of wind and dust, and the thin trees in the garden were lashing themselves along the railing. Poole, who had kept all the way a pace or two ahead, now pulled up in the middle of the pavement, and in spite of the biting weather, took off his hat and mopped his brow with a red pocket handkerchief. But for all the hurry of his coming, these were not the dews of exertion that he wiped away but the moisture of some strangling anguish, for his face was white and his voice when he spoke harsh and broken. Well, sir, he said, here we are. And God grant there be nothing wrong. Amen, Poole, said the lawyer. Thereupon the servant knocked in a very guarded manner. The door was opened on the chain and the voice asked from within, Is that you, Poole? It's all right, said Poole. Open the door. 
The hall, when they entered it, was brightly lighted up. The fire was built high, and about the hearth the whole of the servants, men and women, stood huddled together like a flock of sheep. At the sight of Mr. Utterson, the housemaid broke into hysterical whimpering, and the cook, crying out, Bless God, it's Mr. Utterson, ran forward as if to take him in her arms. What, what are you all here? said the lawyer peevishly. Very regular, very unseemly. Your master would be far from pleased. They're all afraid, said Poole. Blank silence followed, no one protesting. Only the maid lifted her voice and now wept loudly. Hold your tongue, Poole said to her with a ferocity of accent that testified to his own jangled nerves. And indeed, when the girl had so suddenly raised the note of her lamentation, they had all started and turned toward the inner door with faces of dreadful expectation. And now, continued the butler, addressing the knife boy, reach me a candle and we'll get this through hands at once. And then he begged Mr. Utterson to follow him and led the way to the back garden. Now, sir, said he, you come as gently as you can. I want you to hear, and I don't want you to be heard. And see here, sir, if by any chance he was to ask you in, don't go. Mr. Utterson's nerves at this unlooked-for termination gave a jerk that nearly threw him from his balance, but he recollected his courage and followed the butler into the laboratory building through the surgical theatre, with its number of crates and bottles, to the foot of the stair. Here Poole motioned him to stand on one side and listen, while he himself, settling down the candle, and making a great and obvious call on his resolution, mounted the steps and knocked with a somewhat uncertain hand on the red baize of the cabinet door. Mr. Utterson, sir, asking to see you, he called, and even as he did so, once more violently signed to the lawyer to give ear. A voice answered from within. Tell him, I, I cannot see anyone, it said complainingly. Thank you, sir, said Pooh with a note of something like triumph in his voice, and taking up his candle, he led Mr. Utterson back across the yard and into the great kitchen, where the fire was out and the beetles were leaping on the floor. Sir, he said, looking Mr. Utterson in the eye. Was that my master's voice? It seems much changed, replied the lawyer, very pale, but giving look for look. Changed? Well, yes, I think so, said the butler. Have I been twenty years in this man's house to be deceived about his voice? No, sir, master's made away with. He was made away with eight days ago when we heard him cry out upon the name of God. And who's in there instead of him? And why it stays there is a thing that cries to heaven, Mr. Utterson. This is a very strange tale, Poole. This is a rather wild tale, my man, said Utterson, biting his finger. Suppose it were as you suppose, supposing Dr. Jekyll to have been, well, murdered. What could induce the murderer to stay? That won't hold water. It doesn't commend itself to reason. Well, Mr. Utterson, you're a hard man to satisfy, but I'll do it yet, said Poole. All this last week, you must know, him or it, whatever it is that lives in that cabinet, has been crying night and day for some sort of medicine and cannot get it to his mind. It was sometimes this way, the master's, that is, to write his orders on a sheet of paper and throw it on the stair. We've had nothing else this week back, nothing but papers and a closed door, and the very meals left there to be smuggled in when nobody was looking. Well, sir, every day I and twice and thrice in the same day there have been orders and complaints, and I have been sent flying to all the wholesale chemists in town. Every time I brought the stuff back there would be another paper telling me to return it because it was not pure, and another order to a different firm. This drug is wanted, bitter, bad, sir, whatever for. Have you any of these papers? asked Mr. Utterson. Poole felt in his pocket and handed out a crumpled note, which the lawyer, bending nearer to the candle, carefully examined. Its contents ran thus. 
Dr. Jekyll presents his compliments to Messrs. Moore. He assures them that their last sample is impure and quite useless for his present purpose. In the year 18, Dr. J purchased a somewhat large quantity from Messrs. M. He now begs them to search with most sedulous care. Should any of the same quality be left, forward it to him at once. Expense is no consideration. The importance of this to Dr. J can hardly be exaggerated. So far, the letter had run composedly enough, but here, with a sudden splutter of the pen, the writer's emotion had broken loose. For God's sake, he added, find me some of the old. This is a strange note, said Mr. Utterson, and then sharply. How do you come to have it open? The man at Moore's was made angry, sir, and he threw it back to me like so much dirt, returned Poole. This is unquestionably the doctor's hand, you know, resumed the lawyer. I thought it looked like it, said the servant rather sulkily, and then with another voice. But what matters hand of right, he said. I've seen him. Seen him, repeated Mr. Utterson. Well? That's it, said Poole. It was this way. I came suddenly into the theatre from the garden. It seems he had slipped out to look for this drug or whatever it is. For the cabinet door was open, and there he was at the far end of the room, digging among the crates. He looked up when I came in, gave a kind of cry, and whipped upstairs into the cabinet. It was but for one minute that I saw him, but the hair stood up on my head, like quills, sir. If that was my master, why had he a mask upon his face? If that was my master, why did he cry out like a rat and run from me? I've served him long enough. And then, the man paused and passed his hand over his face. These are all very strange circumstances, said Mr. Utterson. But I think I begin to see daylight. Your master pool is plainly seized with one of those maladies that both torture and deform the sufferer. Hence, for aught I know, the alteration in his voice. Hence the mask and the avoidance of his friends. Hence his eagerness to find this drug, by means of which the poor soul retains some hope of ultimate recovery. God grant that he shall not be deceived. There's my explanation. It's sad enough, Poole, aye, and appalling to consider. But it's plain and natural, hangs well together, and delivers us from all exorbitant alarms. Sir, said the butler, turning to a sort of mottled pallor, that thing was not my master. And there's the truth. My master, here he looked round him and began to whisper, is a tall, fine build of a man, and this was more of a dwarf. Utterson attempted to protest. Oh, sir, cried Poole. Do you think I don't know my master after twenty years? Do you think I don't know where his head comes into the cabinet door, where I saw him every morning of my life? No, sir, that thing in the mask was never Dr. Jekyll. God knows what it was, but it was never Dr. Jekyll. And it's the belief of my heart that there was a murder done. Poole, replied the lawyer, if you say that, it will become my duty to make certain. Much as I desire to spare your master's feelings, much as I am puzzled by this note which seemed to prove him to be still alive, I shall consider it my duty to break in that door. Ah, oh, Mr. Utterson, that's talking, cried the butler. And now comes my second question, resumed Utterson. Who is going to do it? Why, you and me, sir, was the undaunted reply. That's very well said, returned the lawyer. And whatever comes of it, I shall make it my business to see that you are no loser. There's an axe in the theatre, continued Poole, and you might take the kitchen poker for yourself. The lawyer took that rude but weighty instrument into his hand and balanced it. Do you know, Poole, he said, looking up, that you and I are about to place ourselves in a position of some peril? You may say so, sir, indeed, returned the butler. It is well, then, that we should be frank, said the other. We both think more than we have said. Let's make a clean breast. This masked figure that you saw, did you recognize it? 
Well, sir, it went so quick and the creature was so doubled up that I could hardly swear to that, was the answer. But if you mean, was it Mr. Hyde? Why, yes, I think it was. You see, it was much of the same bigness and had the same quick, light way with it. And then who else could have got in by the laboratory door? You have not forgot, sir, that at the time of the murder he still had the key with him. But that's not all. I don't know, Mr. Utterson, if you ever met this Mr. Hyde. Yes, said the lawyer, I once spoke with him. Then you must know as well as the rest of us that there was something queer about that gentleman, something that gave a man a turn. I don't know rightly how to say it, sir, beyond this, that you felt in your marrow kind of cold and thin. I own I felt something of what you describe, said Mr. Utterson. Quite so, sir, returned Poe. Well, when that masked thing like a monkey jumped from among the chemicals and whipped into the cabinet, it went down my spine like ice. Oh, I know it's not evidence, Mr. Utterson. I'm book-learned enough for that, but a man has his feelings, and I give you my Bible word. It was Mr. Hyde. Aye, aye, said the lawyer. My fears inclined to the same point. Evil, I fear, found it. Evil was sure to come of that connection. I truly, I believe you. I believe poor Harry's killed, and I believe his murderer, for what purpose God alone can tell, is still lurking in his victim's room. Well, let our name be vengeance. Call Bradshaw. The footman came at the summons, was white and nervous. Pull yourself together, Bradshaw, said the lawyer. This suspense I know is telling upon all of you, but it's now our intention to make an end of it. Poole here and I are going to force our way into the cabinet. If all's well, my shoulders are broad enough to bear the blame. Meanwhile, lest anything should really be amiss or any malefactor seek to escape by the back, you and the boy must go round the corner with a pair of good sticks and take your post at the laboratory door. We give you ten minutes to get to your stations. As Bradshaw left, the lawyer looked at his watch. And now, Poole, let us get to ours, he said, and taking the poker under his arm, led the way into the yard. The scud had banked over the moon and it was now quite dark. The wind, which only broke in puffs and draughts into that deep well of a building, tossed the light of the candle to and fro about their steps until they came into the shelter of the theatre where they sat down silently to wait. London hummed solemnly all around, but nearer at hand, the stillness was only broken by the sounds of a footfall moving to and fro along the cabinet floor. So, it will walk all day, sir, whispered Poole. Aye, and the better part of the night. Only when a new sample comes from the chemist there's a bit of a break. Ah, it's an ill conscience that's such an enemy to rest. Ah, sir, there's been blood foully shed in every step of it. But hark again, a little closer. Put your heart in your ears, Mr. Utterson, and tell me, is that the doctor's foot? The steps fell lightly and oddly, with a certain swing, for all they went so slowly. It was different indeed from the heavy creaking tread of Henry Jekyll. Utterson sighed. Is there never anything else, he asked. Poole nodded. Once, he said. Once, I heard it weeping. Weeping? How that? said the lawyer, conscious of a sudden chill of horror. Weeping like a woman, or a lost soul, said the butler. I came away with that upon my heart, and I could have wept too. But now the ten minutes drew to an end. Poole disinterred the axe from under the stack of packing straw. The candle was set upon the nearest table to light them to the attack, and they drew near with bated breath to where that patient foot was still going up and down, up and down, in the quiet of the night. Jekyll, cried Utterson with a loud voice. I demand to see you. He paused a moment, but there came no reply. 
I give you fair warning. Our suspicions are aroused, and I must and shall see you, he resumed. If not by fair means, then by foul. If not of your consent, then by brute force. Utterson, said the voice, for God's sake, have mercy. Ah, that's not Jekyll's voice, it's Hyde's, cried Utterson. Down with the door, Poole. Poole swung the axe over his shoulder. The blow shook the building, and the red bay's door leaped against the lock and hinges. A dismal screech, as of mere animal terror, rang from the cabinet. Up went the axe again, and again the panels crashed, and the frame bounded. Four times the blow fell, but the wood was tough, and the fittings were of excellent workmanship, and it was not until the fifth that the lock burst, and the wreck of the door fell inwards on the carpet. The besiegers, appalled by their own riot, and the stillness that had succeeded, stood back a little and peered in. There lay the cabinet before their eyes in the quiet lamplight, a good fire glowing and chattering on the hearth, a kettle singing its thin strain, a drawer or two open, papers neatly set forth on the business table, and nearer the fire, the things laid out for tea, the quietest room you would have said, and but for the glazed presses full of chemicals, the most commonplace that night in London. Right in the middle, there lay the body of a man sorely contorted and still twitching. They drew near on tiptoe, turned it on its back and beheld the face of Edward Hyde. He was dressed in clothes far too large for him, clothes with a doctor's bigness. The cords of his face still moved with a semblance of life, but life was quite gone, and by the crushed file in the hand and the strong smell of kernels that hung upon the air, Utterson knew that he was looking upon the body of a self-destroyer. We have come too late, he said sternly, whether to save or punish. Hyde is gone to his account, and it only remains for us to find the body of your master. The far greater proportion of the building was occupied by the theatre, which filled almost the whole ground story, and was lighted from above, and by the cabinet, which formed an upper story at one end and looked upon the court. A corridor joined the theatre to the door on the by-street, and with this the cabinet communicated separately by a second flight of stairs. There were besides a few dark closets and a spacious cellar. All these now they thoroughly examined. Each closet needed but a glance, for all were empty, and all by the dust that fell from their doors had stood long unopened. The cellar indeed was filled with crazy lumber, mostly dating from the times of the surgeon who was Jekyll's predecessor. But even as they opened the door, they were advertised of the uselessness of further search by the fall of a perfect mat of cobweb which had for years sealed up the entrance. Nowhere was there any trace of Henry Jekyll, dead or alive. Poole stamped on the flags of the corridor. He must be buried here, he said, hearkening to the sound. Or he may have fled, said Utterson and he turned to examine the door in the by-street. It was locked, and lying nearby on the flags they found the key, already stained with rust. This does not look like use, observed the lawyer. Use, echoed Poole. Do you not see, sir, it's broken, much as if a man had stamped on it. Aye, continued Utterson, and the fractures too are rusty. The two men looked at each other with a scare. This is beyond me, Poole, said the lawyer. Let us go back to the cabinet. They mounted the stair in silence, and still with an occasional awestruck glance at the dead body, proceeded more thoroughly to examine the contents of the cabinet. At one table there were traces of chemical work, 
various measured heaps of some white salt being laid on glass saucers, as though for an experiment in which the unhappy man had been prevented. That's the same drug I was always bringing him, said Poole, and even as he spoke, the kettle with the startling noise boiled over. This brought them to the fireside, where the easy chair was drawn cosily up, and the tea things stood ready to the sitter's elbow, the very sugar in the cup. There were several books on a shelf, one lay beside the tea things open, and Utterson was amazed to find it a copy of a pious work which Jekyll several times expressed the great esteem, annotated by his own hand with startling blasphemies. Next, in the course of their review of the chamber, the searchers came to the cheval glass, in whose depths they looked with an involuntary horror. But it was so turned to show them nothing but the rosy glow playing on the roof, the fire sparkling in a hundred repetitions along the glazed front of the presses, and their own pale and fearful countenances stooping to look in. This glass has seen some strange things, sir, whispered Poole. And surely none stranger than itself, echoed the lawyer in the same tones. But what did Jekyll? He caught himself up at the word with a start, and then conquering the weakness. What could Jekyll want with it, he said. You may say that, said Poole. Next they turned to the business table. On the desk, among the neat array of papers, a large envelope was uppermost and bore in the doctor's hand the name of Mr. Utterson. The lawyer unsealed it, and several enclosures fell to the floor. The first was a will, drawn in the same eccentric terms as the one which he had returned six months before to serve as a testament in case of death and as a deed of gift in case of disappearance. But in place of the name of Edward Hyde, the lawyer, with indescribable amazement, read the name of Gabriel John Utterson. He looked at Poole, and then back at the paper, and last of all at the dead malefactor stretched upon the carpet. My head goes round, he said. He has been all these days in possession. He had no cause to like me. He must have raged to see himself displaced, and he has not destroyed this document. He caught up the next paper. It was a brief note in the doctor's hand and dated at the top. Oh, Poole, the lawyer cried. He was alive and here this day. He cannot have been disposed of in so short a space. He must still be alive. He must have fled. And then, why fled? And how? And in that case, can we venture to declare this suicide? Oh, we must be careful. I foresee that we may yet involve your master in some dire catastrophe. Why don't you read it, sir? asked Poole. Because I fear, replied the lawyer solemnly. God grant I have no cause for it. And with that he brought the paper to his eyes and read as follows. My dear Utterson, when this shall fall into your hands, I shall have disappeared. Under what circumstances I have not the penetration to foresee, but my instinct and all the circumstances of my nameless situation tell me that the end is sure and must be early. Go then, and first read the narrative which Lanyon warned me he was to place in your hands, and if you care to hear more, turn to the confession of your unworthy and unhappy friend, Henry Jekyll. There was a third enclosure, asked Utterson. Here, sir, said Poole, and gave into his hands a considerable packet, sealed in several places. The lawyer put it in his pocket. I would say nothing of this paper. If your master has fled or is dead, we may at least save his credit. It's now ten. I must go home and read these documents in quiet. But I shall be back before midnight. 
when we shall send for the pl- Dr. Lanyon's narrative. On the 9th of January, now four days ago, I received by the evening delivery a registered envelope addressed in the hand of my colleague and old school companion, Henry Jekyll. I was a good deal surprised by this, for we were by no means in the habit of correspondence. I had seen the man dined with him indeed the night before, and I could imagine nothing in our intercourse that should justify formality of registration. The contents increased my wonder, for this is how the letter ran. 10th December, 18. Dear Lanyon, you are one of my oldest friends, and although we may have differed at times on scientific questions, I cannot remember, at least on my side, any break in our affection. There was never a day when if you had said to me, Jekyll, my life, my honour, my reason depend upon you, I would not have sacrificed my left hand to help you, Lanyon. My life, my honour, my reason are all at your mercy. If you fail me tonight, I am lost. You may suppose, after this preface, that I am going to ask you for something dishonourable to grant. Judge for yourself. I want you to postpone all other engagements for tonight. I, even if you were summoned to the bedside of an emperor, to take a cab unless your carriage should actually be at the door, and with this letter in your hand for consultation, to drive straight to my house. Poole, my butler, has his orders. You'll find him waiting your arrival with a locksmith. The door of my cabinet is then to be forced, and you are to go in alone to open the glazed press, letter E, on the left hand, breaking the lock if it be shut, and to draw out, with all its contents as they stand, the fourth drawer from the top, or, which is the same thing, the third from the bottom. In my extreme distress of mind, I have a morbid fear of misdirecting you, but even if I am in error, you may know the right drawer by its contents, some powders, a file, and a paper book. This drawer I beg of you to carry back with you to Cavendish Square exactly as it stands. This is the first part of the service. Now for the second. You should be back if you set out at once on the receipt of this long before midnight, but I will leave you that amount of margin not only in the fear of one of these obstacles that can neither be prevented nor foreseen, but because an hour when your servants are in bed is to be preferred for what will then remain to do. At midnight, then, I have to ask you to be alone in your consulting room, to admit with your own hand into the house a man who will present himself in my name, and to place in his hands the drawer that you will have brought with you from my cabinet. Then you will have played your part and earned my gratitude completely. Five minutes afterwards, if you insist upon an explanation, you will have understood that these arrangements are of capital importance, and that by the neglect of one of them, fantastic as they must appear, you might have charged your conscience with my death or the shipwreck of my reason. Confident as I am that you will not trifle with this appeal, my heart sinks and my hand trembles at the bare thought of such a possibility, think of me at this hour, in a strange place, labouring under a blackness of distress, that no fancy can exaggerate, and yet well aware that, if you will but punctually serve me, my troubles will roll away like a story that is told. Serve me, my dear Lanyon, and save your friend, H.J. P.S. I had already sealed this up when a fresh terror struck upon my soul. It's possible that the post office may fail me, and this letter not come into your hands until tomorrow morning. In that case, dear Lanyon, do my errand when it shall be most convenient for you in the course of the day, and once more expect my messenger at midnight. It may then already be too late, and if that night passes without event, 
you will know that you have seen the last of Henry Jekyll. Upon the reading of this letter, I made sure my colleague was insane. But till that was proved beyond the possibility of doubt, I felt bound to do as he requested. The less I understood of this farrago, the less I was in a position to judge of its importance, and an appeal so worded could not be set aside without a grave responsibility. I rose accordingly from the table, got into a hansom and drove straight to Jekyll's house. The butler was waiting my arrival. He had received by the same post as mine a registered letter of instruction, and had sent at once for a locksmith and a carpenter. The tradesmen came while we were yet speaking, and we moved in a body to old Dr. Denman's surgical theatre, from which, as you are doubtless aware, Jekyll's private cabinet is most conveniently entered. The door was very strong, the lock excellent. The carpenter avowed he would have great trouble and have to do much damage if force were to be used, and the locksmith was near despair. But this last was a handy fellow, and after two hours' work the door stood open. The press marked E was unlocked, and I took out the drawer, had it filled up with straw and tied in a sheet, and returned with it to Cavendish Square. Here I proceeded to examine its contents. The powders were neatly enough made up, but not with the nicety of the dispensing chemist, so that it was plain they were of Jekyll's private manufacture. And when I opened one of the wrappers, I found what seemed to me a simple crystalline salt of a white colour. The file to which I next turned my attention might have been about half full of a blood-red liquor, which was highly pungent to the sense of smell, and seemed to me to contain phosphorus and some volatile ether. At the other ingredients I could make no guess. The book was an ordinary version book, and contained little but a series of dates. These covered a period of many years, but I observed that the entry ceased nearly a year ago and quite abruptly. Here and there a brief remark was appended to a date, usually no more than a single word, double, occurring perhaps six times in a total of several hundred entries, and once, very early in the list, and followed by several marks of exclamation, total failure. All this, though it whetted my curiosity, told me little that was definite. Here were a file of some salt, and the record of a series of experiments that had led, like too many of Jekyll's investigations, to no end of practical usefulness. How could the presence of these articles in my house affect either the honour, the sanity, or the life of my flighty colleague? If his messenger could go to one place, why could he not go to another? And even granting some impediment, why was this gentleman to be received by me in secret? The more I reflected, the more convinced I grew that I was dealing with a case of cerebral disease, and though I dismissed my servants to bed, I loaded an old revolver that I might be found in some posture of self-defence. Twelve o'clock had scarce rung out over London ere the knocker sounded very gently on the door. I went myself at the summons and found a small man crouching against the pillars of the portico. "'Are you come from Dr. Jekyll?' I asked. He told me yes by a constrained gesture, and when I had bidden him enter, he did not obey me without a searching backward glance into the darkness of the square. There was a policeman not far off, advancing with his bull's-eye open, and at the sight I thought my visitors started and made greater haste. These particulars struck me, I confess, disagreeably, and as I followed him into the bright light of the consulting-room, I kept my hand ready on my weapon. Here at last I had a chance of clearly seeing him. I had never set eyes on him before, so much was certain. He was small, as I have said. I was struck besides by the shocking expression of his face. 
with his remarkable combination of great muscular activity and great apparent debility of constitution, and, last but not least, with the odd subjective disturbance caused by his neighbourhood. This bore some resemblance to incipient rigour and was accompanied by a marked sinking of the pulse. All the time I set it down to some idiosyncratic personal distaste and merely wondered at the acuteness of the symptoms. But I have since had reason to believe the cause to lie much deeper in the nature of man and to turn on some nobler hinge than the principle of hatred. This person who had thus from the first moment of his entrance struck in me what I can only describe as a disgustful curiosity, was dressed in a fashion that would have made an ordinary person laughable, although they were of rich and sober fabric, were enormously too large for him in every measurement, the trousers hanging on his legs and rolled up to keep them from the ground, the waist of the coat below his haunches, and the collar sprawling wide upon his shoulders. Strange to relate, this ludicrous accoutrement was far from moving me to laughter. Rather, there was something abnormal and misbegotten in the very essence of the creature that now faced me, something seizing, surprising, and revolting. This fresh disparity seemed but to fit in with and to reinforce it, so that to my interest in the man's nature and character there was added a curiosity as to his origin, his life, his fortune, and status in the world. These observations, though they have taken so great a space to be set down in, were yet the work of a few seconds. My visitor was indeed on fire with sombre excitement. Have you got it? he cried. Have you got it? And so lively was his impatience that he even laid his hand upon my arm and sought to shake me. I put him back, conscious at his touch of a certain icy pang along my blood. Come, sir, said I, you forget that I have not yet had the pleasure of your acquaintance. Be seated, if you please and I showed him an example and sat down myself in my customary seat, and with as fair an intimation of my ordinary manner to a patient as the lateness of the hour, the nature of my preoccupations, and the horror I had of my visitor would suffer me to muster. I beg your pardon, Dr. Lanyon, he replied civilly enough. What you say is very well founded, and my impatience has shown its heels to my politeness. I came here on the instance of your colleague, Dr. Henry Cheekle, on a piece of business of some moment, and I understood. He paused and put his hand to his throat, and I could see, in spite of his collected manner, that he was wrestling against the approaches of the hysteria. I understood a draw. But here I took pity upon my visitor's suspense, and some, perhaps, on my own growing curiosity. There it is, sir, I said, pointing to the drawer where it lay on the floor behind a table and still covered with the sheet. He sprang to it, and then paused laid his hand upon his heart. I could hear his teeth grate with the convulsive action of his jaws, and his face was so ghastly to see that I grew alarmed both for his life and reason. Compose yourself, said I. He turned a dreadful smile to me, and as if with the decision of despair plucked away the sheet. At sight of the contents, he uttered one loud sob of such immense relief that I sat petrified, and the next moment in a voice that was already fairly well under control. "'Have you a graduated class?' he asked. I rose from my place with something of an effort and gave him what he asked. He thanked me with a smiling nod, measured out a few minutes of the red tincture and added one of the powders. The mixture, which was the first of a reddish hue, began in proportion as the crystals melted to brighten in colour, to effervesce audibly and to throw off small fumes of vapour. 
Suddenly, and at the same moment, the ebullition ceased, and the compound changed to a dark purple, which faded again more slowly to a watery green. My visitor, who had watched these metamorphoses with a keen eye, smiled, set down the glass upon the table, and then turned and looked upon me with an air of scrutiny. And now, said he, to settle what remains, will you be wise? Will you be guided? Will you suffer me to take this glass in my hand and to go forth from your house without further parley? Or, as the greed of curiosity too much command of you, think before you answer, for it shall be done as you decide. As you decide, you should be left as you were before, and neither richer nor wiser, unless the sense of service rendered to a man in mortal distress may be counted as a kind of riches of the soul. Or, if you shall so prefer to choose, a new province of knowledge, and new avenues to fame and power, should be laid open to you, here in this room, upon the instant, and your sight shall be blasted by a prodigy to stagger the unbelief of Satan. Sir, said I, affecting a coolness that I was far from truly possessing, you speak enigmas, and you will perhaps not wonder that I hear you with no very strong impression of belief, but I have gone too far in the way of inexplicable services to pause before I see the end. It is well, replied my visitor. Lanyon, you remember your vows. What follows is under the seal of our profession, and now, you who have so long been bound to the most narrow and material of views, you who have denied the virtue of transcendental medicine, you who have derided your superiors, behold. He put the glass to his lips and drank at one gulp. A cry followed. He reeled, staggered, clutched at the table and held on, staring with injected eyes, gasping with open mouth, and as I looked there came, I thought, a change. He seemed to swell. His face became suddenly black, and the features seemed to melt and alter, and the next moment I had sprung to my feet and leaped back against the wall, my arms raised to shield me from that prodigy, my mind submerged in terror. Oh God, I screamed, and oh God, again and again, but there, before my eyes, pale and shaken, and half fainting, and groping before him with his hands, like a man restored from death, there stood Henry Jekyll. What he told me in the next hour I cannot bring my mind to set on paper. I saw what I saw, I heard what I heard, and my soul sickened at it. And yet now, when that sight has faded from my eyes, I ask myself if I believe it, and I cannot answer. My life is shaken to its roots. Sleep has left me. The deadliest terror sits by me at all hours of the day and night, and I feel that my days are numbered and that I must die, and yet I shall die incredulous. As for the moral turpitude that man unveiled to me, even with tears of penitence, I cannot even in memory dwell on it without a start of horror. I will say but one thing, Utterson, and that, if you can bring your own mind to credit it, will be more than enough. The creature who crept into my house that night was, on Jekyll's own confession, known by the name of Hyde, and hunted for in every corner of the land, as the murderer of Carew. Hasty Lanyon 
Henry Jekyll's Full Statement of the Case I was born in the year 18 to a large fortune, endowed besides with excellent parts, inclined by nature to industry, fond of the respect of the wise and good among my fellow men, and thus, as might have been supposed, with every guarantee of an honourable and distinguished future. And indeed, the worst of my faults was a certain impatient gaiety of disposition, such as has made me the happiness of many, but such as I found it hard to reconcile with my imperious desire to carry my head high and wear a more than commonly grave countenance before the public. Hence it came about that I concealed my pleasures, and that when I reached the years of reflection and began to look around me and take stock of my progress and position in the world, I stood already committed to a profound duplicity of life. Many a man have even blazoned such irregularities as I was guilty of, but from the high views that I had set before me, I regarded and hid them with an almost morbid sense of shame. It was thus rather the exacting nature of my aspirations than any particular degradation in my faults that made me what I was, and with even a deeper trench than in the majority of men, severed in me those provinces of good and ill which divide and compound man's dual nature. In this case, I was driven to reflect deeply and inveterately on that hard law of life which lies at the root of religion and is one of the most plentiful springs of distress. Though so profound a double-dealer, I was in no sense a hypocrite. Both sides of me were in dead earnest. I was no more myself when I laid aside restraint and plunged into shame than when I laboured in the eye of day at the furtherance of knowledge or the relief of sorrow and suffering. And it chanced that the direction of my scientific studies, which led wholly towards the mystic and the transcendental, reacted and shed a strong light on this consciousness of the perennial war among my members. With every day and from both sides of my intelligence, the moral and the intellectual, I thus drew steadily nearer to that truth by whose partial discovery I have been doomed to such a dreadful shipwreck, that man is not truly one, but truly two. I say two because the state of my own knowledge does not pass beyond that point. Others will follow, others will outstrip me on the same lines, and I hazard the guess that man will be ultimately known for a mere polity of multifarious, incongruous and independent denizens. I, for my part, from the nature of my life, advanced infallibly in one direction and in one direction only. It was on the moral side, and in my own person, that I learned to recognize the thorough and primitive duality of man. I saw that, of the two natures that contended in the field of my consciousness, even if I could rightly be said to be either, it was only because I was radically both. And from an early date, even before the course of my scientific pleasure as a beloved daydream on the thought of the separation of these elements. If each, I told myself, could be housed in separate identities, light would be relieved of all that was unbearable. The unjust might go his way, delivered from the aspirations and remorse of his more upright twin, and the just could walk steadfastly and securely on his upward path, doing the good things in which he found his pleasure and no longer exposed to disgrace and penitence by the hands of this extraneous evil. It was the curse of mankind that these incongruous faggots were thus bound together, 
that in the agonized womb of consciousness these polar twins should be continuously struggling. How, then, were they dissociated? I was so far in my reflections when, as I have said, a sidelight began to shine upon the subject from the laboratory table. I began to perceive more deeply than it has ever yet been stated the trembling immateriality, the mist-like transience of this seemingly so solid body in which we walk attired. Certain agents I found to have the power to shake and pluck back that fleshly vestment, even as a wind might toss the curtains of a pavilion. For two good reasons I will not enter deeply into this scientific branch of my confession. First, because I have been made to learn that the doom and burden of our life is bound forever on man's shoulders, and when the attempt is made to cast it off, it but returns upon us with more unfamiliar and more awful pressure. Second, because as my narrative will make, alas, too evident, my discoveries were incomplete. Enough then that I not only recognised my natural body from the mere aura and effulgence of certain of the powers that made up my spirit, but managed to compound a drug by which these powers should be dethroned from their supremacy, and the second form and countenance substituted, none the less natural to me because they were the expressions and bore the stamp of the lower elements in my soul. I hesitated long before I put this theory to the test of practice. I knew well that I risked death for any drug that so potently controlled and shook to the very fortress of identity might, by the least scruple of an overdose or at the least inopportunity in the moment of exhibition, utterly blot out that immaterial tabernacle which I looked to it to change. But the temptation of a discovery so singular and profound at last overcame the suggestions of alarm. I had long since prepared my tincture I purchased at once from a firm of wholesale chemists a large quantity of a particular salt which I knew, from my experiments, to be the last ingredient required, and late one accursed night I compounded the elements, watched them boil and smoke together in the glass, and when the ebullition had subsided with a strong glow of courage, drank off the potion. The most racking pang succeeded, a grinding in the bones, deadly nausea, and a horror of the spirit that cannot be exceeded at the hour of birth or death. Then these agonies began swiftly to subside, and I came to myself as if out of a great sickness. There was something strange in my sensations, something indescribably new, and from its very novelty, incredibly sweet. I felt younger, lighter, happier in body, Within I was conscious of a heady recklessness, a current of disordered sensual images running like a mill-race in my fancy, a solution of the bonds of obligation, an unknown but not an innocent freedom of the soul. I knew myself, at the very first breath of this new life, to be more wicked, tenfold more wicked, sold a slave to my original evil, and a thought in that moment braced and delighted me like wine. I stretched out my hands, exulting in the freshness of these sensations, and in the act, I was suddenly aware that I had lost in stature. There was no mirror at that date in my room. That which stands beside me as I write was brought here later on, and for the very purpose of these transformations. The night, however, was far gone into the morning. The morning, black as it was, was nearly ripe for the conception of the day. 
the inmates of my house were locked in the most rigorous hours of slumber, and I determined, flushed as I was with hope and triumph, to venture in my new shape as far as to my bedroom. I crossed the yard, wherein the constellations looked down upon me. I could have thought with wonder the first creature of that sort that their unsleeping vigilance had yet disclosed to them. I stole through the corridors, a stranger in my own house, and coming to my room, I saw for the first time the appearance of Edward Hyde. I must here speak by theory alone, saying not that which I know, but that which I suppose to be most probable. The evil side of my nature, to which I had now transferred the stamping efficacy, was less robust and less developed than the good which I had just deposed. Again, in the course of my life, which had been, after all, nine-tenths a life of effort, virtue and control, it had been much less exercised and much less exhausted. And hence, as I think, it came about that Edward Hyde was so much smaller, slighter and younger than Henry Jekyll. Even as good shone upon the countenance of the one, evil was written broadly and plainly on the face of the other. Evil besides, which I must still believe to be the lethal side of man, had left on that body an imprint of deformity and decay. And yet, when I looked upon that ugly idol in the glass, I was conscious of no repugnance, rather a leap of welcome. This too was myself. It seemed natural and human. In my eyes it bore a lively image of the spirit. It seemed more express and single than the imperfect and divided countenance I had been hitherto accustomed to call mine. And in so far I was doubtless right. I have observed that when I wore the semblance of Edward Hyde, none could come near to me at first without a visible misgiving of the flesh. This, as I take it, was because all human beings, as we meet them, are commingled out of good and evil, and Edward Hyde, alone in the ranks of mankind, was pure evil. I lingered but a moment at the mirror. The second and conclusive experiment had yet to be attempted. It yet remained to be seen if I had lost my identity beyond redemption and must flee before daylight from a house that was no longer mine, and hurrying back to my cabinet, I once more prepared and drank the cup, once more suffered the pangs of dissolution, and came to myself once more with the character, the stature, and the face of Henry Jekyll. That night I had come to the fatal crossroads. Had I approached my discovery in a more noble spirit, had I risked the experiment while under the empire of generous or pious aspirations, all must have been otherwise. And from these agonies of death and birth, I had come forth an angel instead of a fiend. The drug had no discriminating action. It was neither diabolical nor divine, but it shook the doors of the prison house of my disposition. And like the captives of Philippi, that which stood within ran forth. At the time my virtue slumbered, my evil, kept awake by ambition, was alert and swift to seize the occasion, and the thing that was projected was Edward Hyde. Hence, although I had now two characters as well as two appearances, one was wholly evil, and the other was still the old Henry Jekyll, that incongruous compound of whose reformation and improvement I had already learned to despair. The movement was thus wholly towards the worse. Even at that time I had not conquered my aversions to the dryness of a life of study. I would still be merrily disposed at times, and as my pleasures were, to say the least, undignified, 
and I was not only well known and highly considered, but growing towards the elderly man, this incoherency of my life was daily growing more unwelcome. It was on this side that my new power tempted me, until I fell in slavery. I had but to drink the cup, to doff at once the body of the noted professor and assume, like a thick cloak, that of Edward Hyde. I smiled at the notion. It seemed to me at the time to be humorous, and I made my preparations with the most studious care. I took and furnished that house in Soho, to which Hyde was tracked by the police, and engaged as a housekeeper a creature whom I knew well to be silent and unscrupulous. On the other side, I announced to my servants that a Mr. Hyde, whom I described, was to have full liberty and power about my house in the square, and to parry mishaps, I even called and made myself a familiar object in my second character. I next drew up that will to which you so much objected, so that if anything befell me in the person of Dr. Jekyll, I could enter on that of Edward Hyde without pecuniary loss. And thus fortified, as I supposed, on every side, I began to profit by the strange immunities of my position. Men had before hired bravos to transact their crimes, while their own person and reputation sat under shelter. I was the first that ever did so for his pleasure. I was the first that could plod in the public eye with a load of genial respectability, and in a moment, like a schoolboy, strip off these lendings and spring headlong into the sea of liberty. But for me, in my impenetrable mantle, the safety was complete. Think of it, I did not even exist. Let me but escape into my laboratory door, give me but a second or two to mix and swallow the draught that I always had standing ready, and whatever he had done, Edward Hyde would pass away like the stain of breath upon a mirror, and there in his stead, quietly at home, trimming the midnight lamp in his study, a man who could afford to laugh at suspicion would be Henry Jekyll. Pleasures which I made haste to seek in my disguise were, as I have said, undignified. I would scarce use a harder term. But in the hands of Edward Hyde they soon began to turn towards the monstrous. When I would come back from these excursions, I was often plunged into a kind of wonder at my vicarious depravity. This familiar that I called out of my own soul and sent forth alone to do his good pleasure was a being inherently malign and villainous. His every act and thought centred on self, drinking pleasure with bestial avidity from any degree of torture to another, relentless like a man of stone. Henry Jekyll stood at times aghast before the acts of Edward Hyde, but the situation was apart from ordinary laws and insidiously relaxed the grasp of conscience. It was Hyde, after all, and Hyde alone that was guilty. Jekyll was no worse. He woke again to his good qualities seemingly unimpaired. He would even make haste where it was possible to undo the evil done by Hyde, and thus his conscience slumbered. Into the details of the infamy at which I thus connived, for even now I can scarce grant that I committed it, I have no design of entering. I mean but to point out the warnings and the successive steps to which my chastisement approached. I met with one accident which, as it brought on no consequence, I shall no more than mention. An act of cruelty to a child aroused against me the anger of a passer-by, whom I recognised the other day in the person of your kinsman. The doctor and the child's family joined him. There were moments when I feared for my life, and at last, in order to pacify their too just resentment, Edward Hyde had to bring them to the door and pay them in a cheque drawn in the name of Henry Jekyll. But this danger was easily eliminated from the future by opening an account at another bank in the name of Edward Hyde himself, 
and when, by sloping my own hand backward, I had supplied my double with a signature, I thought I sat beyond the reach of fate. Some two months before the murder of Sir Danvers, I had been out for one of my adventures, had returned at a late hour and woke the next day in bed with somewhat odd sensations. It was in vain I looked about me. In vain I saw the decent furniture and tall proportions of my room in the square. In vain that I recognised the pattern of the bed curtains and the design of the mahogany frame. Something still kept insisting that I was not where I was that I had not awakened where I seemed to be, but in the little room in Soho, where I was accustomed to sleep in the body of Edward Hyde. I smiled to myself, and in my psychological way, began lazily to inquire into the elements of this illusion, occasionally, even as I did so, dropping back into a comfortable morning doze. I was still so engaged when, in one of my more wakeful moments, my eyes fell upon my hand. Now, the hand of Henry Jekyll, as you have often remarked, was professional in shape and size. It was large, firm, white and comely. But the hand which I now saw clearly enough in the yellow light of a mid-London morning, lying half-shut on the bedclothes, was lean, corded, knuckly, of a dusky pallor and thickly shaded with a swart growth of hair. It was the hand of Edward Hyde. I must have stared upon it for near half a minute, sunk as I was in the mere stupidity of wonder, before terror woke up in my breast as sudden and startling as the crash of cymbals. And bounding from my bed I rushed to the mirror. At the sight that met my eyes my blood was changed into something exquisitely thin and icy. Yes, I had gone to bed Henry Jekyll. I had awakened Edward Hyde. How was this to be explained? I asked myself, and then, with another bound of terror, how was it to be remedied? It was well on in the morning, the servants were up, all my drugs were in the cabinet, a long journey down two pairs of stairs, through the back passage, across the open court, and through the anatomical theatre, from where I was then standing horror-struck. It might indeed be possible to cover my face, but of what use was that when I was unable to conceal the alteration in my stature? And then with an overpowering sweetness of relief, it came back upon my mind that the servants were already used to the coming and going of my second self. I had soon dressed as well as I was able, in clothes of my own size, had soon passed through the house where Bradshaw stared and drew back at seeing Mr. Hyde at such an hour in such strange array, and ten minutes later Dr. Jekyll had returned to his own shape and was sitting down with a darkened brow to make a feint of breakfasting. Small indeed was my appetite. This inexplicable incident, this reversal of my previous experience, seemed, like the Babylonian finger on the wall, to be spelling out the letters of my judgment. And I began to reflect more seriously than ever before on the issues and possibilities of my double existence. That part of me, which I had the power of projecting, had lately been much exercised and nourished it had seemed to me of late as though the body of Edward Hyde had grown in stature as though, when I wore that form, I were conscious of a more generous tide of blood. And I began to spy a danger that if this were much prolonged, the balance of my nature might be permanently overthrown, the power of voluntary change be forfeited, and the character of Edward Hyde become irrevocably mine. The power of the drug had not always been equally displayed. Once, very early in my career it had totally failed me. 
Since then, I had been obliged on more than one occasion to double, and once with infinite risk of death, to treble the amount. And these rare uncertainties had cast hitherto the sole shadow on my contentment. Now, however, and in the light of that morning's accident, I was led to remark that whereas in the beginning the difficulty had been to throw off the body of Jekyll, it had of late gradually, but decidedly, transferred itself to the other side. All things, therefore, seemed to point to this, that I was slowly losing hold of my original and better self, and becoming slowly incorporated with my second and worse. Between these two, I now felt I had to choose. My two natures had memory in common, but all other faculties were most unequally shared between them. Jekyll, who was composite, now with the most sensitive apprehensions, now with a greedy gusto, projected and shared in the pleasures and adventures of Hyde. But Hyde was indifferent to Jekyll, or but remembered him as the mountain bandit remembers the cavern in which he conceals himself from pursuit. Jekyll had more than a father's interest. Hyde had more than a son's indifference. To cast in my lot with Jekyll was to die to those appetites which I had long secretly indulged and had of late begun to pamper. To cast it in with Hyde was to die to a thousand interests and aspirations, and to become, at a blow and for ever, despised and friendless. The bargain might appear unequal, but there was still another consideration in the scales. For while Jekyll would suffer smartingly in the fires of abstinence, Hyde would not even be conscious of all that he had lost. Strange as my circumstances were, the terms of this debate are as old and commonplace as man. Much the same inducements and alarms cast a die for any tempted and trembling sinner, and it fell out with me, as it falls with so vast a majority of my fellows, that I chose the better part, and was found wanting in the strength to keep it. Yes, I preferred the elderly and discontented doctor, surrounded by friends and cherishing honest hopes, and bade resolute farewell to the liberty, the comparative youth, the light step, leaping impulses and secret pleasures that I had enjoyed in the disguise of Hyde. I made this choice perhaps with some unconscious reservation, for I neither gave up the house in Soho, nor destroyed the clothes of Edward Hyde, which still lay ready in my cabinet. For two months, however, I was true to my determination. For two months I led a life of such severity as I had never before attained to and enjoyed the compensations of an approving conscience, but time began at last to obliterate the freshness of my alarm. The praises of conscience began to grow into a thing of course. I began to be tortured with throes and longings, as of Hyde struggling after freedom, and at last, in an hour of moral weakness, I once again compounded and swallowed the transforming draught. I do not suppose that when a drunkard reasons with himself upon his vice, he is once out of five hundred times affected by the dangers that he runs through his brutish physical insensibility. Neither had I, long as I had considered my position, made enough allowance for the complete moral insensibility and insensate readiness to evil which were the leading characters of Edward Hyde. Yet it was by these that I was punished. My devil had been long caged. He came out roaring. I was conscious even when I took the draught of a more unbridled, a more furious propensity to ill. It must have been this, I suppose, that stirred in my soul that tempest of impatience with which I listened to the civilities of my unhappy victim. 
I declare at least before God, no man morally sane could have been guilty of that crime upon so pitiful a provocation, and that I struck in no more reasonable spirit than that in which a sick child may break a plaything. But I had voluntarily stripped myself of all those balancing instincts by which even the worst of us continues to walk with some degree of steadiness among temptations, and in my case, to be tempted, however slightly, was to fall. Instantly the spirit of hell awoke in me and raged. With a transport of glee I mauled the unresisting body, tasting delight from every blow, and it was not till weariness had begun to succeed that I was suddenly, in the top fit of my delirium, struck through the heart by a cold thrill of terror. A mist dispersed, I saw my life to be forfeit, and fled from the scene of these excesses at once glorying and trembling, my lust of evil gratified and stimulated, my love of life screwed to the topmost peg. I ran to the house in Soho, to make assurance doubly sure destroyed my papers. Thence I set out through the lamplit streets, in the same divided ecstasy of mind, gloating on my crime, light-headedly devising others in the future and yet still hastening and still hearkening in my wake for the steps of the avenger. Hyde had a song upon his lips as he compounded the draught, and as he drank it, pledged the dead man. The pangs of transformation had not done tearing him before Henry Jekyll, with streaming tears of gratitude and remorse, had fallen upon his knees and lifted his clasped hands to God. The veil of self-indulgence was rent from head to foot. I saw my life as a whole, I followed it up from the days of childhood when I had walked with my father's hand, and through the self-denying toils of my professional life to arrive again and again with the same sense of unreality at the damned horrors of the evening. I could have screamed aloud. I sought with tears and prayers to smother down the crowd of hideous images and sounds with which my memory swarmed against me, and still, between the petitions, the ugly face of my iniquity stared into my soul. As the acuteness of this remorse began to die away, it was succeeded by a sense of joy. The problem of my conduct was solved. Hyde was thenceforth impossible, whether I would or not, I was now confined to the better part of my existence, and oh, how I rejoiced to think of it. With what willing humility I embraced anew the restrictions of natural life. With what sincere renunciation I locked the door by which I had so often gone and come and ground the key under my heel. The next day came the news that the murder had not been overlooked, that the guilt of Hyde was patent to the world, and that the victim was a man high in public estimation. It was not only a crime, it had been a tragic folly. I think I was glad to know it, I think I was glad to have my better impulses thus buttressed and guarded by the terrors of the scaffold. Jekyll was now my city of refuge, let but Hyde peep out an instant, and the hands of all men would be raised to take and slay him. I resolved my future conduct to redeem the past, and I can say with honesty that my resolve was fruitful of some good. You know yourself how earnestly in the last months of the last year I laboured to relieve suffering. You know that much was done for others, and that the days passed quietly, almost happily for myself. Nor can I truly say that I was wearied of this beneficent and innocent life. I think instead that I daily enjoyed it more completely, but I was still cursed with my duality of purpose, and as the first edge of my penitence wore off, 
the lower side of me, so long indulged, so recently chained down, began to growl for license. Not that I dreamed of resuscitating Hyde, the bare idea of that would startle me to frenzy. No, it was in my own person that I was once more tempted to trifle with my conscience, and it was an ordinary secret sinner that I at last fell below the assaults of temptation. There comes an end to all things. The most capricious measure is filled at last, and this brief condescension to my evil finally destroyed the balance of my soul. And yet I was not alarmed. The fall seemed natural, like a return to the old days before I had made my discovery. It was a fine, clear January day, wet underfoot where the frost had melted, but cloudless overhead, and the Regent's Park was full of winter chirrupings and sweet with spring odours. I sat in the sun on a bench, the animal within me licking the chops of memory, the spiritual side a little drowsed, promising subsequent penitence, but not yet moved to begin. After all, I reflected, I was like my neighbours, and then I smiled, comparing myself with other men, comparing my active goodwill with the lazy cruelty of their neglect. And at the very moment of that vainglorious thought, a qualm came over me, a horrid nausea and the most deadly shuddering. These passed away and left me faint. And then, as in turn faintness subsided, I began to be aware of a change in the temper of my thoughts, a greater boldness, a contempt of danger, a solution of the bonds of obligation. I looked down. My clothes hung formlessly on my shrunken limbs. The hand that lay on my knee was corded and hairy. I was once more Edward Hyde. A moment before I had been safe of all man's respect, wealthy, beloved, the cloth laying for me in the dining room at home, and now I was the common quarry of mankind, hunted, houseless, a known murderer, thrall to the gallows. My reason wavered, but it did not fail me utterly. I have more than once observed that in my second character my faculties seemed sharpened to a point and my spirits more tensely elastic. Thus it came about that where Jekyll perhaps might have succumbed, Hyde rose to the importance of the moment. My drugs were in one of the presses of my cabinet. How was I to reach them? That was the problem that crushing my temples in my hands I set myself to solve. The laboratory door I had closed. If I sought to enter by the house, my own servants would consign me to the gallows. I saw I must employ another hand and thought of Lanyon. How was he to be reached? How persuaded? Supposing that I escaped capture in the streets, how was I to make my way into his presence? And how should I, an unknown and displeasing visitor, prevail on the famous physician to rifle the study of his colleague, Dr. Jekyll? Then I remembered that of my original character, one part remained to me. I could write my own hand. And once I had conceived that kindling spark, the way that I must follow became lighted up from end to end. Thereupon, I arranged my clothes as best I could, and summoning a passing hansom drove to a hotel in Portland Street, the name of which I chanced to remember. At my appearance, which was indeed comical enough, however tragic a fate these garments covered, the driver could not conceal his mirth. I gnashed my teeth upon him with a gust of devilish fury, and a smile withered from his face, happily for him, yet more happily for myself, for in another instant I had certainly dragged him from his perch. At the inn, as I entered, I looked about me with so black a countenance as made the attendants tremble. Not a look did they exchange in my presence, but obsequiously took my orders, led me to a private room, and brought me wherewithal to write. 
hide in danger of his life was a creature new to me, shaken with inordinate anger, strung to the pitch of murder, lusting to inflict pain. Yet the creature was astute, mastered his fury with a great effort of will, composed his two important letters, one to Lanyon and one to Poole, and that he might receive actual evidence of their being posted, sent them out with directions that they should be registered. Thenceforward, he sat all day over the fire in the private room, gnawing his nails. There he dined, sitting alone with his fears, the waiter visibly quailing before his eye. And thence, when the night was fully come, he set forth in the corner of a closed cab and was driven to and fro about the streets of the city. He, I say, I cannot say I, that child of hell had nothing human, nothing lived in him but fear and hatred, and when at last, thinking the driver had begun to grow suspicious, he discharged the cab and ventured on foot, attired in his misfitting clothes, an object marked out for observation, into the midst of the nocturnal passengers. These two base passion raged within him like a tempest. He walked fast, hunted by his fears, chattering to himself, skulking through the less frequented thoroughfares, counting the minutes that still divided him from midnight. Once a woman spoke to him, offering, I think, a box of lights. He smote her in the face, and she fled. When I came to myself at Lanyon's, the horror of my old friend perhaps affected me somewhat. I do not know. It was at least but a drop in the sea to the abhorrence with which I looked back upon these hours. A change had come over me. It was no longer the fear of the gallows, it was the horror of being high that racked me. I received Lanyon's condemnation partly in a dream. It was partly in a dream that I came home to my own house and got into bed. I slept after the prostration of the day with a stringent and profound slumber, which not even the nightmares that wrung me could avail to break. I awoke in the morning shaken, weakened, but refreshed. I still hated and feared the thought of that brute that slept within me and I had not, of course, forgotten the appalling dangers of the day before, but I was once more at home, in my own house, and close to my drugs, and gratitude for my escape shone so strong in my soul that it almost rivaled the brightness of hope. I was stepping leisurely across the court after breakfast, drinking the chill of the air with pleasure, when I was seized again with those indescribable sensations that heralded the change, and I had but the time to gain the shelter of my cabinet before I was once again raging and freezing with the passions of Hyde. It took on this occasion a double dose to recall me to myself, and alas, six hours after, as I sat looking sadly in the fire, the pangs returned, and the drug had to be re-administered. In short, from that day forth it seemed only by a great effort, as of gymnastics, and only under the immediate stimulation of the drug, that I was able to wear the countenance of Jekyll. At all hours of the day and night I would be taken with a premonitory shudder. Above all, if I slept or even dozed for a moment in my chair, it was always as Hyde that I awakened. Under the strains of this continually impending doom, and by the sleeplessness to which I now condemn myself, I, even beyond what I had thought possible to man, I became in my own person a creature eaten up and emptied by fever languidly weak both in body and mind, and solely occupied by one thought, the horror of my other self. But when I slept, or when the virtue of the medicine wore off, I would leap almost without transition, for the pangs of transformation grew daily less marked, into the possession of a fancy brimming with images of terror, 
a soul boiling with causeless hatreds, and a body that seemed not strong enough to contain the raging energies of life. The powers of Hyde seemed to have grown with the sickliness of Jekyll, and certainly the hate that now divided them was equal on each side. With Jekyll, it was a thing of vital instinct. He had now seen the full deformity of that creature that shared with him some of the phenomena of consciousness, and was co-heir with him to death. And beyond these links of community, which in themselves made the most poignant part of his distress, he thought of Hyde, for all his energy of life, as of something not only hellish, but inorganic. This was the shocking thing. The slime of the pit seemed to utter cries and voices, that the amorphous dust gesticulated and sinned, that what was dead and had no shape could usurp the offices of life. And this again, that the insurgent horror was knit to him closer than a wife, closer than an eye, the caged in his flesh, where he heard it mutter and felt its struggle to be born, and at every hour of weakness and in the confidence of slumber prevailed against him and deposed him out of life. The hatred of Hyde for Jekyll was of a different order. His terror of the gallows drove him continually to commit temporary suicide and return to his subordinate station of a part instead of a person. But he loathed the necessity. He loathed the despondency into which Jekyll was now fallen, and he resented the dislike with which he was himself regarded. Hence the ape-like tricks that he would play me, scrawling in my own hand blasphemies on the pages of my books, burning the letters and destroying the portrait of my father. And indeed, had it not been for his fear of death, he would long ago have ruined himself in order to involve me in the ruin. But his love of life is wonderful. I go further, I who sicken and freeze at the mere thought of him when I recall the objection and passion of his attachment, and when I know how he fears my power to cut him off by suicide, I find it in my heart to pity him. It is useless, and the time awfully fails me to prolong this description. No one has ever suffered such torments, let that suffice. And yet even to these, habit brought, no, not alleviation, but a certain callousness of soul, a certain acquiescence of despair. And my punishment might have gone on for years, but for the last calamity which has now fallen, and which has finally severed me from my own face and nature. My provision of the salt, which had never been renewed since the date of the first experiment, began to run low. I sent out for fresh supply and mixed the draft. The ebullition followed and the first change of colour, not the second. I drank it, and it was without efficiency. You will learn from Poole how I have had London ransacked. It was in vain. And I am now persuaded that my first supply was impure, and that it was that unknown impurity which lent efficacy to the draught. About a week has passed, and I am now finishing this statement under the influence of the last of the old powders. This, then, is the last time short of a miracle, that Henry Jekyll can think his own thoughts or see his own face, now how sadly altered in the glass. Nor must I delay too long to bring my writing to an end, for if my narrative has hitherto escaped destruction, it has been by a combination of great prudence and great good luck. Should the throes of change take me in the act of writing it, Hyde will tear it to pieces. But if some time shall have elapsed after I have laid it by, his wonderful selfishness and circumscription to the moment will probably save it once again from the action 
of his ape-like spite. And indeed the doom that is closing on us both has already changed and crushed him. Half an hour from now, when I shall again and forever re-endue that hated personality, I know how I shall sit shuddering and weeping in my chair, or continue with the most strained and fear-struck ecstasy of listening, to pace up and down this room, my last earthly refuge, and give ear to every sound of menace. Will Hyde die upon the scaffold, or will he find courage to release himself at the last moment? God knows. I am careless. This is the true hour of death, and what is to follow concerns another than myself. Here then, as I lay down the pen and proceed to seal up my confession, I bring the life of that unhappy Henry Jekyll to an end. Everybody dies, don't they? So that was the second part and conclusion of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde by Robert Louis Stevenson. I hope you enjoyed it. I just want to talk about some of the themes that occur in the story now. The Twins Most cultures have a fascination with the phenomenon of twins. Jekyll and Hyde can be understood to be a strange type of twin. Castor and Pollux were twins in classical mythology. Both had the same mother, as would be expected, Leda, but each had a different father. Castor's father was Leda's mortal husband, and thus was mortal, while Pollux was the son of Zeus, and thus an immortal. When push came to shove and Castor was killed, Pollux shared half his immortality with his twin. We see in Tolkien the half-elf brothers Elrond and Elros choose their kindred, Elrond to be an elf and thus immortal, and Elros to be a human and thus to die. In fact, the symbol of the twins runs throughout our culture, Cain and Abel, Romulus and Remus, Osiris and Set. Very often one is bad and the other good. Most often, stories about twins involve a moral choice. The psychologist Carl Jung felt this motif revealed an archetype in the human nature itself. Jung, collected works 20, page 217, note, mentions the old apocryphal legend that Jesus, the believer, was twin to Thomas, the doubter. Chevalier and Gerbrandt translated John Buchanan Brown in their Dictionary of Symbols, 1994, page 1047, talk about different pairings of twins, one dark, the other light, one good, the other evil, and they say that they represent the contradictions in a person's nature and his or her moral struggle to overcome them. Stevenson's discussion of this theme addresses the morality, but as well as being philosophical, he manages to demonstrate it through its human and dramatic aspect and show the suffering that such a struggle within a person's nature can bring. It's not so simple as good fighting against bad. Jekyll wants to be both evil and good at the same time and enjoy his evil with no penalty. His solution is to create, or more correctly, liberate Mr. Hyde. Jekyll gets away with his guilty but tempting pleasures while he can, but when he fears that Hyde will cause him to be punished, he tries to do away with Hyde, but he has fed the beast too much, and it has grown too strong, and in the end it is Hyde's evil that proves the stronger. Rather than sharing his immortality as Pollux does for Castor, Jekyll chooses to share his death with Hyde, killing himself, and thus killing them both. The idea is that in each of us is a mortal and an immortal part. 
They are always together, but never completely one. We see this in Castor and Pollux, but also in Jesus and the Christ, who were both man and God in the same body. We see a version of it where Jekyll is the mixed man, very mortal, fond of both his sensual pleasures and his pious reputation, and Hyde, who is uncombined, younger, more vital, his senses sharper, but wholly made of shadow. The Elixir Stevenson's tincture that changes colour and foams and bubbles has been portrayed many times on the television and movie screens. You can even get your own alcoholic version in the Alchemist Bar in Manchester, and now elsewhere. It does seem to link back to the elixir of life of the medieval and Renaissance alchemists, which they also called a tincture, in that it is transformative. The elixir of the alchemists could reputedly turn lead into gold, bring that which was dead alive once more, and transform man into God. Jekyll's elixir turns man into monster. It is also interesting that in an old Irish story, the Druids gave the great warrior Cúchulain an elixir of forgetfulness, so he would forget his love for a woman who was not his wife, and would therefore not fall into sin. In a sense, Jekyll's elixir allows him to forget his moral nature, and partake of Hyde's excesses and abominations with an unblemished conscience, at least so long as he is Hyde. At first thought, Jekyll's problem is that his elixir does not allow him to forget his sins when he has returned to being Jekyll, but actually, he enjoys the things he does as Hyde, until he's in danger of being caught, and then he begins to regret them. Temptation Jekyll is tempted by sinful pleasures, but also so is Dr. Lanyon. When Hyde comes to Lanyon, he teases him with offering to allow him to remain ignorant of what is really going to happen, but Lanyon cannot resist, he has to know. Hyde tempts Lanyon with the knowledge of the elixir. It's reminiscent to a modern reader of The Lord of the Rings and the way the ring tempts all who come across it to power, and the choice reveals their true nature. Lanyon chooses knowledge and suffers greatly for it in the end. Another echo here is perhaps Adam and Eve eating from the food of the tree of knowledge, which God had forbidden them to do. Consciously or unconsciously, Stevenson lapsed Calvinist as he was, seems to be evoking this choice. Lanyon is no Aragorn or Samwise Gamgee transpires, more a Boromir. I'm not convinced that at any deep level Jekyll is sorry for what he has done. Indeed, he says that he cannot call Hyde I and refers to him as him, thus keeping Hyde's crimes at arm's length and avoiding responsibility. Jekyll is only sorry that it didn't work out. So thanks once again for listening. The call to action this week is a support one. I've really benefited from the support of people who listen and enjoy the podcast. And if you do, it would be great if you could give some support, however modest. On the episodes themselves and on the website, there's a button to buy me a coffee. And that's a no commitment contribution to the running costs of the podcast. If you feel more strongly about the podcast and you've enjoyed a number of episodes and you want to see it keep going, then you can become sign up and become a patron through the Patreon website. And there are links to that on the website and on the in the show notes, the podcast show notes. So if you feel you're able to contribute to the running costs of the podcast and help us keep going, that would be gratefully received. And you can either do it by a one-off, buy me a coffee or becoming a, a committed patron to the show. So finally, everybody, I hope you're enjoying the stories. Let me know what you want me to read. You all keep safe and I'll speak to you again next week.